the Pete Wire Band from New York City who um, wrote the song, dedicated it to the victims of Holodomor, and that was recorded back in 2014, long before anyone had any idea of the murderous intentions of the Kremlin towards Ukraine we are seeing today. Vitaju vas vsih dorihi radiju suhiči na radiju prošamu naš holos radiju krinskoho kurinja, Katra podjeti vam na bahatomovni radiostanci AM 1320 CHMB u misti Vancouveri. Pri mikrofoni Pavlina. Dobri večer and welcome to Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio here on AM 1320 CHMB Vancouver. I'm your host Pavlina. 
Today's program will be a little bit different from the norm. Uh, November is Holodomor Remembrance Month, and 90 years ago this year, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin had deliberately starved to death millions of Ukrainians for resisting his collectivization and other communist absurdities. The actual number of Ukrainian victims ranges between 3 and 12 millions, and scholars are still trying to pin down that number. It was only 40 years ago that the cover-up of the Holodomor began to be exposed, along with the genocide itself. I remember well the shock of learning about it in university back then, and subsequently the vehement and often vicious attacks on scholars, writers, filmmakers, and others trying to tell the world about Holodomor. Sadly, those attacks have never stopped and, in fact, are ramping up. So in addition to the usual proverb of the week and other items of interest, this edition of the show will attempt to honor the memory of those who perished in the Holodomor. My mama молчала про голод, про те, як хліба хотіла, про те і нестерпний холод. Про те, як в скрині сиділа, моя мама мовчала, мовчала, вона мала шість годочків, коли вони все забрали, окрім тих штанів і сорочки, моя мама весну так любила, бо розквітала вишня. Через губи цідила І знала, що вона вже лишня Мертві лежали покотом І серця їх кам'яніли Голод душив їх чоботом І скидав їх у могили З голоду мама виросла Мала аж синю, її я часто просила розповісти про ту скриню. Моя мама так хліб любила, жито сіяла й жала. Вона в кишені ховала крихти, коли і Thanks to the foresight and generosity of its donors, the Shurchenko Foundation has been investing in the future of the Ukrainian-Canadian community for the past 60 years. Since 1963, the Shurchenko Foundation has been funding initiatives that strengthen our Ukrainian-Canadian identity and enhance our Ukrainian-Canadian cultural heritage. These include fine and performing artists and arts groups, museums, cultural centers, education, as well as authors, journalists, and the Ukrainian-Canadian media including this program. The Foundation strives to become the premier not-for-profit foundation in a Canada which acknowledges the Ukrainian-Canadian community as a fundamental component of Canadian society. Nasholos listeners are encouraged to support this vision through continued donations into the future. To apply for grants, make a donation, or for more information, visit www.shurchenkofoundation.ca. Ukraine is under deadly attack, and Ukraine War Amps is asking for your help with a donation today. Funds are desperately needed by Ukrainian defenders for bulletproof jackets, helmets, walkie-talkies, food, water and gas, and by civilians, including children, for food, water and medications, and when possible, escape to safety. Please donate today to Ukraine War Amps via PayPal, e-transfer to ukrainewaramps at gmail.com, or visit ukrainewaramps.ca. 
during the big months of the Holodomor. Every minute, 24 people died from starvation in Ukraine. Every hour, 1,440 people died. Every day, 34,560 people died. Four and a half million Ukrainians were killed in two years. It was a carefully planned genocide organized by Moscow against Ukraine. They could not take freedom away from us. So they tried to take our lives instead. Genocide against the Ukrainians, 1932-33. Land of plenty, please tell me if it's true. Land of plenty, what did they do to you? Land of plenty, they stripped your wheat fields bare. Land of plenty, as if you were not there. Land of plenty, they stripped your wheat fields bare. Land of plenty, as if you were not there. Land of plenty, your people lived off you. But it started in 1932. Land of plenty, your people you could feed. But that year you were robbed for foreign greed. Land of plenty, your people you could feed But that year you were robbed for foreign greed Land of plenty, your people could not eat Satan's soldiers collected all your wheat was written to give equality in the name of an ideology that was written to give equality land of plenty refused the right to give and Ukraine was refused the right to live land of plenty as if you were not there land of plenty the harvests of despair land of plenty as if you were not there land of plenty the harvests of despair Land of plenty Two years with empty hands And the world still Refused to understand That your nation Just wanted to be free Land of plenty of 1933 Yes, your nation just wanted to be free Land of plenty of 1933 In the early 1930s, Americans received much of their news about life in the Soviet Union from Walter Durante the New York Times' Man in Moscow. Durante's articles filled the front pages with gripping stories from Mother Russia. During that period, Joseph Stalin was consolidating power over the captive nations that formed the Soviet Union. One step in that drive called for the forced relocation of millions of Ukrainians. Observing these events on the scene was British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge. He witnessed the loading of thousands of Ukrainians into boxcars. 
they were being deported to barren regions of the Soviet Union. This program of Stalin's alone accounted for more than one million deaths. This is the most terrible thing I've ever seen. It precisely because of the deliberation with which it was done and the total absence of even any kind of sympathy. Durante's articles in the New York Times sharply contradicted Muggeridge's reports. Durante went out of his way to dismiss them as bunk or sheer absurdity. During the deliberate famine of 1932 to 1933, more than seven million Ukrainians perished when Stalin seized their entire grain crop for export. Still in a March 1933 article, Durante insisted there is no actual starvation or deaths from starvation, but there is widespread mortality from diseases due to malnutrition. That was when his reporting was particularly disgraceful, because he denied that there was any famine. And we used to wonder whether, in fact, the authorities hadn't got some kind of hold over him, because he so utterly played their game. But it didn't uh, worry the New York Times, who featured his reports. Ultimately, the cover-up of Stalin's crimes helped the communist regime gain diplomatic recognition from the United States. In 1933, the Roosevelt administration invited a Soviet representative to Washington to negotiate terms of diplomatic recognition. For his news correspondence during the previous year, Durante would receive the Pulitzer Prize. Welcome to Knishka Corner, book reviews by Myra Junik. Stories about Ukraine and Ukrainians in English. In this edition of Knishka Corner, we will be discussing Marsha Forchuk Skripuk's novel, Winterkill. Winterkill examines the experience of Ukrainians during the Holodomor of the 1930s. The narrative describes the conscious choice of Russian Soviet authorities to starve Ukrainian farmers and their families in order to impose Stalin's five-year plan. It was supposed to modernize the Soviet Union but actually hurt people like us. He was taking away our farms and making them into one big collective farm, the Kholhos. Twelve-year-old Nil lives with his family in the village of Filipka, near Kharkiv in Soviet Ukraine. It is 1930, and the Soviet authorities are visiting farms to catalog the possessions of Ukrainian farmers. One day... Two strangers from Canada appear. Alice is a young pioneer, and her father works for the Soviets. They have come all the way from Canada to implement Soviet plans to collectivize farms. Alice tells Nil, We're helping with the drive to get people signed up for the kolkhoz, as the pair catalog all his family's possessions. Nil realizes nothing will ever be the same. The brutal collectivization process continues, and everything is questioned. Religion, family, beliefs, education, individual ownership, culture, and farming practices. Alice tells Nil to get rid of his family's icons, because they will get his family into a lot of trouble. All the family's farm animals are taken away for the kolkhoz. Tractors will supposedly replace people in the fields and produce more grain. The Soviets kill the local priest and his wife, and the church is destroyed. Nil's uncle Ilya is killed. Other kulaks are sent into exile, and Aunt Paulina's collection of old folk songs is burned. Nil and his family realize that they must leave their home and everything they have ever known. While trying to survive, he must deal with grief for his parents, his sister Yulia's loyalty to the Soviet cause, 
and his brother's Slavko's desire to remain in Ukraine to build tractors. During Nell's journey, he is helped by Alice, the young pioneer from Canada, a variety of generous villagers, and Rhea Kleiman, a Canadian journalist. Kleiman was expelled from the USSR for reporting truthfully about the Holodomor, while other Western journalists collaborated with the Soviets to cover up these horrific events for decades. Skripuk deals with a difficult subject in a thoughtful and compassionate way. She wrote this novel because of her own personal connections to the history of Ukraine. Her Ukrainian-born grandfather was a member of the Canadian Communist Party. He came to Canada before World War I and was interned as an enemy alien in Jasper, Alberta. The Communists welcomed him back after the internment, but he was rejected by many other Canadians. He even wanted to go to the Soviet Union, but the events of Stalin's Holodomor caused him to reject his former beliefs. While written for younger readers, this novel will appeal to readers of all ages because of the strength of its characterization and storyline. Nil and Alice are both intelligent, empathetic, and brave young people who are dedicated to truth, morality, and family. The storyline deals with the events of Stalin's Holodomor. He not only wanted to collectivize parts of Ukraine, he also wanted to eliminate the Ukrainian culture and population. Villagers were starved to death, while their wheat was used to feed other Soviet citizens. We provided them with a bountiful harvest, and now they would leave us with nothing. Ukrainian culture was brutally attacked. Nail watches the village priest and his wife being killed, and his church burned down. Aunt Paulina's collection of Ukrainian folk songs is burned after her husband is murdered by the Soviets. It wasn't enough for the shock workers to kill my uncle. They also burned the songs. Our way of life was being erased. While Winterkill is about the events of the Holodomor in the early 1930s, there is a direct link to the actions of Putin's Russia during the war in Ukraine, which began in 2014 and escalated to a full-scale invasion in February 2022. In these years, Russian soldiers have murdered civilians, committed war crimes, and specifically targeted cultural institutions for destruction. This novel will appeal to those readers who want to know more about the history of Ukraine, the Holodomor, and the politics of genocide. Marsha Fortschuk Skrapuk is a Ukrainian-Canadian writer who has published more than 20 books. Marsha suffered from dyslexia as a child, but overcame it with patience and determination. After high school, she backpacked around Europe and then took a job selling industrial supplies. She was the first woman in Canada to do so. She became a librarian after completing her master's degree in library science, but her real dream was to become a writer. After receiving over 100 rejections for her first lengthy novel, in 1996, she published her first book, Silver Threads. Her books have won many awards, including the 2020 Saskatchewan Snow Willow Award for Don't Tell the Enemy, the 2020 Yellow Cedar Award for Too Young to Escape, and the 2018 Golden Oak Award for Adrift at Sea. She was honored by Ukraine's president with the Order of Princess Olha. Winterkill was a selection of the Velshi Band Book Club. In 2022, Marsha was banned for life from entering the Russian Federation. Marsha lives in Brantford, Ontario, with her family. Winterkill is available at Chapters Indigo and Amazon. Thank you, Myra, for another thorough and thoughtful review. Join us again soon for another Kanishka Corner Book Review with Myra Jenik here on Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio. In the meantime, if you'd like to listen again to this or Myra's previous reviews or read the transcript, you can find them archived at our website, www.nasholos.com. Mm-hmm. 
Malcolm Muggeridge arrived in the USSR in 1932. He was one of the very few journalists to report on the real conditions in the countryside. For every article on the famine that appeared, two were published denying its existence. Muggeridge recalls the most influential correspondent in Moscow was Walter Duranty, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for the New York Times. Not only the greatest liar among the journalists in, in Moscow, but he was the greatest liar of any journalist that I ever met in the 50 years of journalism. And we used to wonder whether, in fact, the authorities hadn't got some kind of hold over him, because he so utterly played their game. When it came to the famine, the great famine in the Ukraine, that was when his reporting was particularly disgraceful because he denied that there was any famine. The Soviets actually grant Duranty permission to tour Ukraine unchaperoned. He reports in the Times that all talk of famine now is ridiculous. Yet documents from the British Foreign Office reveal that in private conversations at the British Embassy, Duranty said as many as 10 million people had died. When they were discussing the question of um, recognizing the Soviet Union, the United States government recognizing the Soviet Union, the articles of Duranty were considered as very valuable evidence on the side of, of recognition. Кривді за плеча тріпотіла добра летіла там, де рідний край, де Україну голоду нагай, шмагав до згину не день, не годину вогником свіча. Сповивала мати дитинча, сповивала пісні, гомоніла. Про гірку біду, недолю гон, про чужу борду, криваво чолу подай, скам'яніла. На вікні свіча. Ти дитинча, колисала не в колисці, ні, не в колисці, але у труні. Мертві по ровах, їх мільйони коні в церквах, словно дзвони, хто ж то Україні, Боже, нині Ні в 
сталінські образки. Гопнуй гречаники, комуністи, начальники, а мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки. Гопнуй гречаники, комуністи, начальники, а мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки. Позбирались усі раді, усі лежні дуже раді. Ми будемо куркулів ділити і не будемо робити. Гопнуй гречаники, комуністи, начальники, а мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки. Гопнуй гречаники. А мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки Нема хліба, нема сала Все комунія забрала Ні короби, ні свині Тільки Сталін на стіні Гопимої гречаники, комуністи, начальники А мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки Гопимої гречаники, комуністи, начальники А мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки Сталін в хаті, Ленін з двору Ворошило в коморі все товожді комуністи, комуністи, стратаїсти. Гоп, мої гречаники, комуністи, начальники, а мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки. Гоп, мої гречаники, комуністи, начальники, а мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки. Мужики дураки, а ми комуністи, мужики будуть робити, а ми будемо їсти. Гоп, мої гречаники, комуністи, начальники, а мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки. Гоп, мої гречаники, а мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки Я маленька колгоспниця Заробила трудодень Мати ходять без спідниці А батенько без ходень Гопи мої гречаники, комуністи, начальники А мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки Гопи мої гречаники, комуністи, начальники А мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки Сидить баба на рядні Все ж читає трудодні Має сорок і один, дайте хліба хоч на день. Гопи мої гречаники, комуністи, начальники, а мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки. Гопи мої гречаники, комуністи, начальники, а мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки. Працювала десять день, заробила трудодень, а от того трудодня голодую я щодня. Гопи мої гречаники, комуністи, начальники, а мужики батраки, а сталінці дураки. Гопи мої гречаники, Taras Kompaniczynko with a song called Rychanike, which translates as buckwheat pancakes and is a traditional Ukrainian folk song. The lyrics were changed a little bit during that time to mock the absurdity of communism. In June of 2015, the Toronto-based Ukrainian Jewish Encounter held a conference in Lviv, Ukraine, that explored the interrelationship between propaganda and genocide. 
I was fortunate to be able to attend that conference and meet some world-renowned scholars, historians, and other experts in these fields. One of them was Dr. Andrea Graziosi. He is a professor of modern history at the University of Naples, Federico II, in Italy, a fellow of the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute and Harvard's Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. From 2014 to 2017, he was vice president and then president of Italy's National Authority for the Evaluation of Universities and Research. In 2006, he was awarded the Ukrainian Order of Prince Yaroslav the Wise for his research on the Holodomor and his efforts to attract international attention to it. He is the author of many books about the Holodomor, Stalinism, the USSR, and more. I had the honor and privilege to speak with Dr. Graziosi at that 2015 conference on propaganda and genocide. Dr. Andrea Graziosi, one of the first historians to write about the Holodomor. Now, why did you decide to do that when no one else was doing it? And was it difficult? Uh, no, it, it was luck, in a way, in, for an historian, of course, because I, uh, I decided I, I was living then in Rome for a while. I was, doing, I was working in the States, but I went back to Italy, and I had to stay a few months there. And so I decided to go through the archives of the foreign ministry about the Soviet Union. And by pure luck, chance, I found, because I decided to go through it year by year, the whole archive regarding the, Soviet, the Italian embassy and the Italian consulates in the Soviet Union. And so I found these documents about the Lodomor that I didn't know they existed. So it was but these documents were so good. These are the Italian consular reports. They are still considered one of the best sources on the Holodomor. And they were two, three hundred pages. And they were very shocking because these were the reports from the consulate in Kharkiv, in Novorossiysk, in Odessa. There was a vast network of consulates and deputies and, and, let's say, sub-consulates, you know. And, and they sent every week, basically, a report. And the one from Kharkiv, but all of them were good, but the one for Kharkiv were fantastic. And so I was very shocked. Actually, I was so shocked. I was, very, I was young, I was 32, maybe. No, yes. And I, I didn't know what to do, because they were so strong. And then I decided to publish, and I published them in French first, and then in Italian, and now... There are also, they did a new edition in France, one in Ukraine, and so they are very well known. There is an American small one. And, and, and so this is how it started, out of pure, let's say, God. <laughs> and, and, but the documents were extremely impressive. They changed my, my whole interpretation of, the Soviet, of Soviet history, because they covered it from 29 to 34. So 35, actually. So this was sort of a, a, a discovery, something new. That, yes, and this it, was, yes, this was completely new. I now know that there were some Basilian monks that were, because there was the, you know, the, 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 the decision of the American, the Canadian diaspora to, let's say, have a big event for the 50th anniversary, the Conquest Project, but... Then I discovered they too were looking at things, but was independent. And in fact, they, they found some of them and they published them in James Mays uh, in the Congressional. And actually, we became friends with Jim because we, we, we were working on the same material. Yeah. And, and, but we didn't know each other. And so I, when I went to Washington as a Woodrow Wilson Center Fellow, we became friends then. So it started, if you want, it's one of my research lines. It's not the only one. It's the very important one for me. Now, you talk about uh, genocide, and, and this conference was about three genocides in the context of, of propaganda. And you talked about the three stages when you first learn about a genocide and uh, the importance to, to get, get past the first stage. Yes, the, 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 of course, when you discover this at the first moment, you get very, not angry, but you are very moved. Actually, for about three, four months, I didn't know what to do with this, because it was so strong. And then you get very, because you discover nobody, how is it possible nobody has written? Then, of course, you discover that the Canadian immigrants in 52 had published, but 
that no scholarship took this into consideration. And, you know, by the 1980s, this was 1986, 1987, there was such a massive production of books on Soviet history, nobody was dealing with this. So I got very angry at first. Very angry, that is, I you know, felt a shock. This, uh, this is not possible. And I wanted, you know, to fight or what. But then you discover that, that the only serious thing to do, this is the second stage, is that you have to reconstruct painfully what happened because that's the only way not to convince the sinners, as they say, but to build a knowledge, a basis of knowledge that other people can utilize. Because if you enter in, into polemics with people that deny things, that, then the level is so low, the knowledge never progress, never advance. So I think it's better to go beyond the first stage and to engage in serious scholarship. That is the contribution we can give. And you talked also about um, the individual genocides. I mean, these three and then others as well as, as being part of, a, of a, an overall big picture. Yeah, you know, I think, this is, I think this is one of the most, has been one of the most sad but also exciting research field. Because basically even the Holocaust, we, you know, it got conceptualized only in the 60s and 70s. That is 20 years after the fact. Even though there were plenty of memoirs, they all a lot more after 60 years. But even the Holocaust after 20 years, and and then you start to study, and, and then you start to understand that there have been many. Of course, all of them different from one another, but many. So there is at the same time a general pattern that is coming out, but there are very specific, very different tragedies that you have to study on their own. Of course, then it's very useful also to see them in their analogies, in their difference from one another, because they actually you get new lights when you do this, because you, you see the real differences help you understand the specificity and the common traits. But I think by now we have a very, compared to 20 years ago, you may remember, by now we have a very good knowledge of many of these events, not of all of them, and we have a general picture. What we still miss, we have, you know, there are many attempts that are very valuable, but it's a convincing, unifying general interpretation, because certainly it's true that there have been genocides since the very beginning of humankind, but in the past two centuries, especially in Europe, there has been something special, linked to state building, I think and to nation building because I think that each state leadership decide to cut itself a people of its own I would say liking like the, the young Turks decided to cut out Armenians and Greek the Nazi decided to cut out the Jews the, the, the Soviet decided to cut out first the, the bourgeois, the noble then the Cossacks the, then the Ukrainian the, 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 the Crimean Tatars and so there has been a lot of let's say I don't know, it's wrong to call it social engineering, because it was not engineering, it was like, uh, how do you say? Uh, yeah, not, not just ethnic, because not only ethnic. The, the Kulak, it's not only ethnic. There has been religious too, and social. For security concern, when they deported all the people living in the borders that were dangerous. So, actually, the, these new states, the, the very aggressive varieties, restructured their own population according to their ideology, their wishes, their, their fears, real or imagined. And this is something very new, I think, that happened in Europe. And we start to see this in all of its dimension. It's very, very interesting. Well, it's also very troubling, and uh, it doesn't appear that it's a phenomenon just of the 20th century, that I think it's carried on into the 21st, and we're seeing that in uh, the propaganda. I think you can say that this modern wave of this kind of, let's call them genocides in general, started already in the, in the 19th century. Because, for example, in the Balkans, when the states started to become independent, the, the Tars were kicked out. and You know, it started already then, actually. Not as violently, but things of the Tatars. We know that the Crimean Tatars were kicked out by Stalin, but the process actually started with Tsarist Russia in the 1850s and 60s. So the beginning you have then, the great Armenian massacres of the 1890s. So you, 
it's true that the 20th century is the century, but it started actually, I would say, in the 19th century and got, it exploded in the 20th. And then I think it reached its peak in World War II or the decade before, let's say in the 30s and 40s. And then it declined a little bit in Europe, but then it went beyond Europe. And, and, and in Europe it's not so bad, but it started again something similar in the former Yugoslav territories and in the former Soviet territories. Not as bad yet, unfortunately. In Yugoslav was pretty bad, in former Yugoslavia was pretty bad. So I think it's a whole, how to say, period that you, we can conceptualize now, if you want my opinion. This is, of course, my opinion. But I think it's more or less convincing to me, at least. Uh, one last question, uh, Dr. Graciosi, is um, uh, talking about propaganda. Propaganda is a problem. Uh, right now we're facing this in reality, and we discussed it in the context of these different genocides. And you said that we, many of us think of propaganda on TV and it's to, to, uh, to brainwash the masses, but you say it's not really... There are many varieties. I think these regimes use propaganda not to convince the masses, also because they were against the masses often, but to mobilize their own activists in order to do things. And so they have a very crude, very that seems very vulgar, very violent, because it's what, it's, it's, they didn't want to convince peasants. They wanted to convince the activists that Ukrainian peasants were pigs, that they had to be slaughtered. Or they wanted to convince the SS that the Jews were subhumans, not even subhumans. They were like pathological agents that had to be destroyed. So the, the, in this case, propaganda was not a tool to mobilize or to organize the population. There was that too, huh? I'm not saying. But you have to distinguish this from these other cases of propaganda as a tool of, mo of mobilization of activists. I think this is very important. I yeah, Dr. Graciosi, thank, thank, thank you so, so much. much. Hello, I'm Vasil Pavlovsky, and this is Cultural Capital on Nash Wallace. I lived in Kiev, Ukraine for over 10 years, and during that period I met very interesting and talented individuals. At a little pub called Kupiton in the center of Ukraine's capital, I was blessed more than once to hear the voice of one Yevhenia Sakharova. Over time, we got to know one another, and thanks to social media, we've been able to stay in touch since I left Kiev in mid-September of 2009. Yevhenia was born a little less than two weeks after the Chernobyl disaster on May 8, 1986 in the city of Umany to Tetyana and Yuri Sakharov. Shortly after Yevhenia was born, the family relocated to Cherkasy. Currently, there are many individuals making the ultimate sacrifice in serving their nation. Yevhenia's older brother Mikhailo is serving in Ukraine's armed forces, and I hope that he remains amongst us. Many young Ukrainians have been lost during this genocidal attack by Putin on Ukraine. During this month, we remember others who fell in serving their nations in battles against evil. On October 20th of this year, Yevhenia released her song called Titans, which you will shortly hear. This song is about the courageous defense of Azovstal in Mariupol, and its words are extremely powerful. Still in her youth, Yevhenia was involved in youth theater and often focused on singing songs of English language artists. She was an outstanding young student, and upon completion of her studies in Cherkasy, she departed to study at the Kiev Municipal Academy of Variety and Circus Arts. It was during this period of her life that I met her at Kupidan. At that time, she was singing with Mandorov Irai, though she has also performed as back vocalist with numerous Ukrainian artists, such as Jamala, the 2016 Eurovision Song Contest winner, as well as The Mannequin, a solo project of Yevhen Filatov who was in fact the sound producer of Jamala's song 1944. In 2010, she released an album, Spivanochke, with guitarist Henagi Bondar. While Yevhenia was performing in Turkey in 2013, she met her future husband. She told me that she only recently returned to singing and performing in September of 2022. I focused on taking care of my children, she told me. Yevhenia also teaches music and English to small groups of children. Yevhenia now lives in Kusadasi, a beach town on the western coast of Turkey on the Aegean Sea. Since the beginning of the Great War, I've been organizing different activities of support for Ukraine and Turkey. Meetings, fundraising concerts, gathering humanitarian aid for women who were evacuated from Ukraine and who now live in Kusadashi, as well as sending humanitarian aid to Ukraine, she told me. Yevhenia joined a women's 
group called Slava, composed of women refugees from Ukraine. They participate at different festivals representing Ukraine through dance in Turkey and collecting funds for the armed forces of Ukraine. In August of 2023, Yevhenia made a trip to her hometown of Cherkasy to visit and pay homage to wounded soldiers. She spent five hours at the local hospital visiting the wounded, moving from room to room and sharing her voice. She told me they all wanted contact and an opportunity explaining what they had been through and where they had been positioned. While her song Titans plays homage to those who stood in Mariupol, she told me she's trying to focus on writing more positive songs. November is a month of remembrance in different ways for Ukrainians. Both the losses of the Great War, as Yevhenia put it, and the losses of the genocidal famine of the early 1930s should never be forgotten. I would like to borrow a quote from John F. Kennedy with a slight modification. The cost of freedom is always high, but Ukrainians have always paid for it. And one path they shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender or submission. And if you haven't already, please light a candle and place it in your window in the memory of those who perished in the Holodomor. Here's what's coming up this week in Vancouver's Ukrainian community. On Saturday, December the 2nd, from 11 a.m. till 4 p.m., visit Ukrainian Christmas Fair at St. Mary's Ukrainian Catholic Center in Vancouver. Free admission with donation going to the Catholic Near East Welfare Association, CNEWA, to support Ukrainian relief efforts. Experience the Ukrainian food and culture of the more than 95,000 Ukrainians living in the Lower Mainland at this Ukrainian Christmas Fair. On December the 2nd, come to St. Mary's Ukrainian Catholic Center at Ash Street to join the celebration. On Tuesday, December 5th at 8 p.m., Come and see Carol of the Bells, a Ukrainian Christmas. The event will be held at the Orpheum Annex Theatre in Vancouver and is organized by the Ukrainian-Canadian Advocacy Group. Enjoy seasonal music performed by internationally renowned pianist Anna Sagalova, guitarist Denis Panchenko, and the Kolo Ukrainian Choir in Carol of the Bells, a Ukrainian Christmas in music. It's a fundraiser for the Ukrainian-Canadian Advocacy Group's Rehabilitation Program for the Children of Fallen Heroes. The program for the evening includes an array of traditional Ukrainian Christmas carols. Tickets are $100 and include a complimentary beverage and a lovingly curated gift bag. Tickets are available on www.vtixonline.com. Carol of the Bells, a Ukrainian Christmas in Music, takes place at 8 p.m. on Tuesday, December 5th at the Orpheum Theatre on Seymour Street. Doors open at 7 p.m. On Wednesdays, tune in to the Nanaimo edition of Nash Holos, which can be heard in the Vancouver listening area at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on CHLY 101.7 FM and streaming online at chly.ca. 
And at 6 p.m. Saturday evenings, flip your radio dial right back here to AM 1320 CHMB Vancouver or catch the live stream at am1320.com for another hour of Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio. Please send us your suggestions, dedications, and requests. Your comments are always welcome. In between broadcasts, visit our Facebook page and for audio archives, transcripts, podcast feed, and a link to our Patreon site where you can support our work if you like, visit our website at www.nasholos.com. Nahadiu vislukhiti radio programu Nasholos Radio Nasho Korinya, Nabahatumovni radio stansi AM 1320 CHMB umisti Vancouveri. Nejame vjeskin chela Nasho programu vjechastu domu iskazati do pobachenia, ala peritem sema slobame mudrostia. Nevajne shtotemayesh, ala yakte postupayesh. And our proverb of the week translates as it is not important what you have, but how you behave. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio here on AM 1320 CHMB Vancouver. To wrap up the show, a tune with a message to Mr. Putin, the same as it's been to his predecessors. Get out of Ukraine. I'm Pavlina. On behalf of all of us here at Nash Holos and AM 1320, thanks for listening and Dobranich.
Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.